Jesus told the parable of the father who had two sons. The younger son uh, came to his father and asked his father for his inheritance. Now that was an insult to the father. It was saying to the father, I don't really care about you. I just care about your stuff. I don't love you. I want my inheritance now so I can go and live however I please. The father graciously gave that portion of the inheritance to his younger son. Now the younger son would have been expected to have honored his father and to have served on his father's estate. But rather than honoring his father, rather than serving on his father's estate, he takes his inheritance early and he goes off to a far land. And he squanders that inheritance that the father had so graciously given to him. He squandered the inheritance in reckless living. Finally, in that far country, uh, he had exhausted that inheritance. He had nothing left. There was a famine in the land. And he was forced to ask a pig farmer if he could tend that farmer's pigs. Now this is the lowest of the low for a Jew to go to. Because pigs are unclean animals. A Jew would never choose to work on a pig farm. But that is how low this younger son has fallen. And there he's working on the pig farm, tending the pigs, and he, he longs that he could just eat some of the pods that are fed to the pigs. He has nothing. He's hungry. Finally, he comes to his senses. And, and he, he says, you know, I, I have sinned against heaven. In other words, I've sinned against God. I've sinned against my father. I, I, I am not worthy to be called his, his son. But I know that his servants have more than I have right now. Uh, let, let me go back to my father. Let, let me confess to my father that I have sinned against God. I have sinned against him. That I'm not worthy to be his son. And let me ask my father if he would treat me as one of his hired servants. And so the son begins to go back to the father. Now the father sees his younger son off in the distance returning. And this Middle Eastern estate owner runs to his son. Now Middle Eastern estate owners don't run. That is below the dignity of an estate owner. But this father runs. He runs to his son. Now, his son has prepared this speech, and his son gets some of it out. He says to the father, I have sinned against heaven. I have sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But before he can get to the next part, asking him, begging him to treat him as a hired servant, the father says to his servants, Go, get the best robe. Whose robe would that be? That would be the father's robe. Go get the best robe and put it here on my younger son. Put a ring on his finger. Put shoes on his feet. Now, servants in that day didn't have shoes. He wanted to be treated as a servant. But the father restores his relationship with him and treats him as a son. Put shoes on his feet. Kill the fattened calf. We are going to celebrate because this son of mine who was dead is now alive. This son of mine who was lost has now been found. Meanwhile, the older brother was out working in the fields. And the older brother comes in from working in the fields 
And he hears the sound of music and dancing, celebration. And so he asks one of the servants, what is happening? And so the servant tells him exactly what has happened. Now, the father has been inside celebrating. And the father hears that his older son is outside, not celebrating. And so the father goes outside to his son, the older son, and says to the older son, come, come inside and, and, and celebrate. But the older son says, for all these years, I have been serving you. And you have never given me a, even a goat to, to, um, to butcher and to eat and have a party with, with my friends. And yet this son of yours, who has squandered your, your, your wealth, devouring your wealth with prostitutes, when this one comes back, you kill the fattened calf for him, I will never go in and celebrate. And Jesus makes the point through the Father in the parable. The Father says, it is right for us to celebrate. It is right, it is good for us to celebrate because this, my son, was dead and he's alive. He was lost and he is found. I share that with you because we're studying the book of Jonah. And in Jonah chapter 1, the prophet Jonah is like the prodigal son. Jonah seeks to flee from the presence of the Lord in rebellion against God. And now in chapter 4, Jonah is like the elder brother. Jonah doesn't want God to show mercy and grace to evildoers. As we study the first half of chapter 4 today, we may see that we are more like Jonah than we have realized. And the good news here is that God, who was gracious and merciful to Jonah, is our God as well. Jonah was in need of spiritual heart surgery, as we will see, and as all of us are. May our loving Heavenly Father do His surgery on our hearts this morning through His Word. I'm going to read Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. Please stand in honor of the Word of God if you are able. Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? This is God's holy word. Please be seated. We learn from 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, that the prophet Jonah was from Gath-Hefer, a village near Nazareth in the northern kingdom of Israel, that, and that he ministered during the reign of Jeroboam II, the king of the northern kingdom. Now we know from Kings and Chronicles that the northern kingdom was in apostasy and in rebellion against God. We, we assume that in Jonah's ministry, that he repeatedly called upon the king of Israel and the people of Israel to repent. And we also assume that neither the king of the northern kingdom nor the people in that kingdom heeded the calls to repent. In the book of Jonah, the Lord twice 
caused Jonah to go to the Gentile city of Nineveh to warn them of God's impending judgment. We saw how in chapter 1, Jonah disobeyed that command to go to Nineveh, and he sought to flee from the presence of the Lord. Uh, He got onto a ship headed towards Tarshish, going as far as he could in the opposite direction of Nineveh. But the sovereign Lord opposed Jonah in his running away and sent a great storm so that the, 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 the sailors were even afraid that they were going to perish in this storm. Jonah, rather than repenting in the middle of that storm, he tells the, the sailors to throw him overboard, that the storm would cease. They do so, the storm ceases, and God appoints a great fish to swallow Jonah, to save Jonah from drowning in that raging sea. And for three days and three nights, the Lord preserves Jonah in the belly of the great fish. In chapter 2, we read uh, a, a psalm of thanksgiving to the Lord that reflects repentance on Jonah's part. Thanksgiving that he gives to the Lord for, for saving him from perishing. He says those great words in that, that psalm of praise. Salvation belongs to the Lord. After three days and three nights, the Lord commands the great fish to deposit Jonah on the dry land. And the Lord's word comes again to Jonah to go to Nineveh and to call out against that great city. For their evil had come up before the Lord. And this time, Jonah obeys. He goes to Nineveh. He goes a day's journey into that great city. And he proclaims the message that the Lord had given to him to proclaim. Yet 40 days and the city will be overthrown. A warning of God's judgment that would come upon Nineveh for their evil. And we see in chapter 3 that the Holy Spirit did a great work in Nineveh in hearts and lives, through the preaching of the Word of God. And the Holy Spirit so worked that the city, this this great city, they repented of their evil. They repented of their violence. And they called out to God. They called out to God to, asking God to relent from this disaster that He had warned of to relent of this judgment that he had pronounced, that they would not perish. And in the last verse of chapter 3, we read that the Lord relented. Now that brings us to our passage. Chapter 4, verses 1-4 through that I just read to us. A passage that exposes Jonah's heart and exposes our heart as well. A passage that confronts the heart that reacts negatively to God's gift of grace and mercy to others. So that we might repent and that we might rejoice in the gracious and merciful character of our God. As we study this passage, we will first of all see anger over God's grace and mercy. And second of all, we will see God's response. First of all, anger over God's grace and mercy. Look closely with me in Jonah 4 at verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. You have to ask the question, what displeased Jonah exceedingly? Well, look back at the previous verse, chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Now, at first glance, it might seem that Jonah was displeased that God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to Nineveh. However, look at chapter 4, verse 5. Chapter 4, verse 5. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade 
till he should see what would become of the city. So back in chapter 4, verse 1, when Jonah becomes exceedingly displeased, we, as the reader, know for a fact that God has relented. That was stated to us in chapter 3, verse 10. But Jonah doesn't know that God has relented. What does Jonah know for a fact? He does know for a fact that the Ninevites have turned from their evil way. He knows they have believed God. He knows they are calling out to God. And then he knows that, as Jesus will state, they have repented at the preaching of Jonah. Jonah is displeased that Nineveh has repented, because he knows that the Lord will not overthrow a repentant people. Jonah knows that when people repent, the Lord relents of the judgment of which he has warned. Jonah knows that the Lord is gracious and merciful to repentant people. Now, there are several reasons why we should find it jarring that Jonah is exceedingly displeased. The first is that Jonah had experienced the Lord's salvation personally in chapter 2. For this, Jonah had greatly praised the Lord from the belly of the great fish. He gave that wonderful psalm of thanksgiving to the Lord for saving him. So it is jarring now when Jonah is displeased with God, displeased with God extending the same salvation to others. He's received it. Now he's jarred that, now it's jarring to us that he's displeased that God is giving it to others. How could you be displeased that God is giving to others the great salvation he gave to you? The second reason why we should find his displeasure jarring, is that Jesus taught that God himself rejoices over repentance and rejoices over the salvation of the lost and that we should as well. I want you to turn over to Luke 15. Luke chapter 15. Where Jesus taught this using three parables. Luke chapter 15. We have the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son. Look in chapter 15, beginning of verse 4. All three parables do make a common point. Verse 4. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country? and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, what is Jesus saying here? when he says there will be more joy in heaven over this. The Jews tended to not use the word God. They would use the word heaven instead. When Jesus says there will be more joy in heaven, he's talking about God's own joy. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. God rejoices more over one sinner who repents than he rejoices over 99 righteous persons who don't need repentance. This is what God does. He rejoices in repentance. Then look at verse 8. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Same point. Notice that Jesus is not talking about angels rejoicing. He's talking about joy before the angels of God. Who's before the angels of God? God himself is before them. They're around his throne. Again, there's more joy from, from the Lord over one sinner who repents. The Lord rejoices in sinners 
repenting. Now go down to verse 31. We're going to jump into the end of the parable of the prodigal son that I told earlier. I want you to look at verse 31. And he said to him, this is the father saying to the older son, the father represents God. The father said to him, son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the point of the parable made to the self-righteous one who refuses to rejoice over the repentance of sinners and the salvation of sinners. It is fitting to celebrate and be glad. Understand that repentance is reason to rejoice exceedingly. That God's salvation of lost people is reason to rejoice exceedingly. And so we should find Jonah 4.1 jarring. You can come back to Jonah 4.1. Very jarring when we read, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. Jonah had just been used of God in the greatest work of the Holy Spirit through the preaching of God's Word recorded in the entire Old Testament. He saw the greatest work of the Spirit in bringing about conversion, bringing about repentance. Understand that if you love God, then you hate evil. And if you hate evil, and God so works in the heart of evildoers that they turn from their evil way, then that in itself is reason for rejoicing. And if God then shows His grace and mercy in forgiving them, there's further reason for rejoicing. But Jonah does not have a heart to rejoice in these things. We read in verse 1, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Now what should Jonah be doing here? He should be following up with these Ninevites who have just expressed repentance. He should be following up with these Ninevites who have just turned from their evil ways upon hearing the word of the God of Israel. He should be teaching them about the true God. He should be teaching them about what God requires of them. He should be teaching them the Lord's ways. But instead, he is angry. When we get angry, we have concluded that someone has done something wrong. Now, the Lord had been righteously angry with the Ninevites, as the king of Nineveh said in his proclamation in verse 9. The Lord had been angry because of the Ninevites' evil deeds. But there is nothing righteous in Jonah's anger. Jonah expresses his anger in verse 2. Look at verse 2. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. What is Jonah doing here? He's defending his initial refusal to go to Nineveh. He's defending his initial disobedience. He says that he did, he did this because he saw this coming. He saw this coming, that the Ninevites would repent, and that God would then relent from the disaster. He saw it coming. He's trying to avoid this happening. He's defending his disobedience, defending, refusing to do what God had called him to do. Jonah thinks that he knows better than the Lord. He thinks that the Lord should have listened to him. The Lord should have consulted him. Now, observe in verse 2 what Jonah says. He knew about the Lord. I knew that you are a gracious God 
and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Let me ask you, does this list of divine attributes sound familiar? It should, if you've read the book of Exodus, because it comes from Exodus after the golden calf incident. I want you to turn with me back to the book of Exodus. Turn back to Exodus chapter 32. In the first half of Exodus 32, the Israelites break the second commandment that had just been given to them, I think, less than 40 days before this. Moses has been up on the mountain talking with God. The people have been at the base of the mountain. What do they do? They break the second commandment. The second commandment is you shall not make a graven image to worship. You shall not bow down to one. You shall not serve one. But they make a graven image. They represent God with a golden calf. And they bow down to it. They worship it. Flagrantly transgressing the second commandment. Breaking God's covenant. Now let's pick it up in chapter 32 at verse 7. Verse 7. And this is the background for what Jonah says about the attributes, the character of God. Verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Notice that the Lord speaks of Israel as Moses' people. They've broken the covenant with the Lord. Verse 8. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people. And behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. So God's saying, I'm going to destroy Israel, there will be no more Israel, now I'm going to make a new nation called Moses. Verse 11. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, Why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing upon his people. Does that last sentence sound familiar? The Lord relented from the disaster that He had spoken of bringing on His people. It is exactly what the Lord would do later for Nineveh. We read that in chapter 3. The Lord relented of the great disaster that He had told Nineveh He would bring upon them. Here, the Lord did this for Israel. The Lord, at this point, had every right to consume Israel. He had required them to to confess their loyalty to Him and to the covenant, and they did so. When the Lord made His covenant with them, they said, we will do all that you have commanded us to do so. The Lord had previously redeemed them out of Israel. I'm sorry, had redeemed them out of Egypt, making them His own treasured possession. They've said, we will do all that you have commanded. If you don't, we understand the penalty is destruction. And they flagrantly disobeyed. They flagrantly broke the covenant. 
the Lord had every right to consume Israel in his jealousy and in his anger. Because in the second commandment, he based that commandment on the fact that he is a jealous God. He doesn't share his worship with a created thing, like an idol. Now go down to chapter 34, verse 1. Moses, we read Moses interceding for the people. Moses asked the Lord to relent from the disaster that he said that he would do to them in destroying them. Look at chapter 34, verse 1. And we've already read that the Lord has done so. He has relented. Now, 34 verse 1, The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone, like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Moses broke those, those tablets, which God had inscribed with His covenant. Moses had broken those in the sight of the people as a picture of what the people had done at the, at, with the golden calf. They had broken the covenant. They had shattered the covenant. And now the Lord, in His grace, in His mercy, says, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first. And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. The Lord is saying, I am restoring my covenant with my people. I have relented, and I am restoring my relationship with them. Go down to verse 2. Verse 2. Be ready for the mor- by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This verse that I just read is where Jonah got his list of God's attributes. With the exception of the last one Jonah mentions that God relents from disaster which we already saw in Exodus chapter 32. The Lord continues to speak of His character. Verse 7, Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. And that's exactly what the Lord did. He had relented from the disaster that He had said He would do to Israel. He forgave their iniquity. He pardoned their sin. And he went with them to the land of Canaan. Now, the attributes that the Lord reveals of his nature in verses 6 through 7 are of extreme significance to his covenant relationship with his people. That he is merciful, that he is gracious, that he is slow to anger, that he is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, that he keeps steadfast love for thousands, that he forgives iniquity and transgressions and sins. These attributes of God's nature are the basis of his covenant relationship with his people. Apart from these attributes, there would not be an Israel. God would have wiped them off of the map in his jealousy and fierce, just anger. But God is gracious. He is merciful. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love. He does forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin. And so there was an Israel. And there continued to be an Israel. There continued to be a relationship between God and his chosen people because of the character of God, because of the nature of God. Now, Jonah knew that this was the character of the Lord. 
And he knew that the Lord would relent from judging a repentant Nineveh, just as the Lord had relented from judging Israel when Moses interceded. And Jonah doesn't like it. Rather than listing the Lord's attributes in praise to the Lord, Jonah lists these attributes of God in a tirade against God. Jonah is angry that the Lord gave a message of warning to a, a message warning of judgment to Nineveh. And it boils down to being angry with the Lord for giving Nineveh grace and mercy. And come back to Jonah 4. In verse 2, in his prayer to the Lord, Jonah shows himself to be self-absorbed and proud. I know better than God. Lord, this is what I said would happen. This is why I didn't go to Nineveh. I know better than you. Self-absorbed, proud. And this carries into verse 3. Look at verse 3. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. Now, when Jonah was back in the belly of the great fish, he praised the Lord for saving his life. But now in anger, he asked the Lord to take his life. You see, anger makes a person miserable. And anger poisons your relationship with God. The desire that Jonah once had to serve the Lord and to glorify the Lord is now gone. He is spiraling downward in self-centeredness. He can't handle not getting his way. Jonah is a man who approves of the Lord being gracious and merciful to Israel, a nation that largely lived in, lived in disobedience, but he vehemently disapproves of God being gracious and merciful to anyone else. Now we have to ask, where does such resentment of God's grace and mercy come from? Turn back to Luke 15. Luke 15. I want you to see how those three parables that we have looked at were introduced. What was the occasion for the parable of the lost coin, the lost son, and so forth? Why was Jesus making the point about it's only fitting to rejoice? when sinners repent. It's only fitting to rejoice when the lost is saved. Look at Luke 15, verse 1. Verse 1, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. You see the attitude of the Pharisees and the scribes? They see tax collectors. They see people known as sinners drawing near to hear Jesus. And they're grumbling that this man, Jesus, receives sinners and eats with them. The attitude of the Pharisees and scribes here are, are, is not all that different from Jonah's attitude in our text. These Pharisees and scribes are represented in the parable of the prodigal son by the older brother. Go down to verse 25. Verse 25. Now this now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. Is this anger familiar? It should be. We just saw it in Jonah. 
Jonah was angry at the grace and the mercy being given to Nineveh. Here, the older brother is angry that the father is celebrating the repentance and salvation of his younger brother. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. I want you to observe in verses 29 and 30 what came out of the older brother's heart. Self-righteousness came out of his heart. I never disobeyed your command. Really? If you looked honestly at the whole record, is that really the case? Self-righteousness. I never disobeyed your command. My brother has, but I never have. And also, coming out of his heart, is entitlement. I'm entitled to a party because I have obeyed you. This brother of mine, the son of yours, he's not entitled to what you're giving him. Look at how he's, what he's done with your, with your estate. He squandered it. Look at what he did. Look at how he insulted you. He's not entitled to it. I'm entitled to a party. Self-righteousness and entitlement come out of the heart of the older brother. And this is where resentment of God's grace and mercy comes from. It comes from self-righteousness and a consequent attitude of entitlement. In Luke 18.9, we read that Jesus told the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, quote, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Those two go hand in hand. Trusting in yourself that you are righteous and treating others with contempt. Self-righteousness and a lack of grace and mercy toward others go hand in hand. We see Jonah in the elder brother. We see Jonah in the Pharisees who grumbled about Jesus receiving sinners and eating with them. We see Jonah in those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. The heart that resents God's grace and mercy being given to others is a self-righteous heart, a proud heart. A heart that feels entitled to better treatment than others. And such a heart is prone to be displeased, angry, and unhappy, as Jonah is in our text. Beloved brethren, let me ask you, can you relate to Jonah? If you have been a Christian long enough, and if you look at your heart honestly, you can surely relate to some degree to Jonah. Maybe there are some unbelievers whom you do not want God to forgive. For whatever reason, you look down on them, or you have hatred toward them, or you are bitter toward them, and you do not want God to forgive them. Or maybe there is a believer whom you do not want to forgive. You do not want to reflect God's forgiveness to them. You resent the idea of God's grace and mercy being given to them. Perhaps you have been unwilling to seek reconciliation because you expect that they will ask your forgiveness and you don't want to give forgiveness. And so like Jonah, you run in the opposite direction. Or maybe it is not so much that you don't want another person to receive God's grace and mercy, but that you feel entitled for God to treat you better than some other people, and you can't bear the thought of God treating them well. We can relate to Jonah, either in one of these ways, 
or in having a self-righteous, proud, entitled heart. That's the first half of our, half of our text. Anger over God's grace and mercy. Having seen this, let's turn to the second half of our text, God's response. We see God's response in Jonah 4, verse 4. You can turn back to Jonah. Verse 4, we read, And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Now, first of all, notice that the Lord, in His goodness and love, does not grant Jonah's request. Jonah's request was, O Lord, please take my life from me. The Lord, in His goodness and love, doesn't grant that request. Rather, the Lord asks Jonah a question in order that Jonah would stop and look at what he is doing. And with this question, the Lord begins to challenge and correct Jonah's anger. There are a number of times in Scripture when God has begun to challenge and correct a person by asking a question. After Adam sinned and he was hiding from God, we read in Genesis 3.9, the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? In the next chapter of Genesis, after Cain killed his brother Abel, the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? In 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 11, after Saul disobeyed the clear word of the Lord through the prophet Samuel, Samuel said to Saul, What have you done? And we have something similar here. Do you do well to be angry? The right answer is no. No, I do not do well to be angry. As the Lord will show Jonah in the rest of the chapter. So, if, if you have been living like Jonah, let the Lord's question here pierce your heart. Do you do well to be angry? The Lord is asking, do you do well to resent my grace and my mercy being given to others? We do not do well in doing so. And we need to confess this to the Lord. Heavenly Father, I am wrong to be angry. I am wrong to resent your grace and your mercy being given to others. I am so wrong to be self-righteous and proud and to feel entitled to better treatment than others. And then we need to ask the Lord's forgiveness and seek His grace to delight in the things in which He delights. To delight in Him showing grace and mercy to others just as He delights in doing so. And we need to ask the Lord to deal with the sinful attitudes of our heart. Asking our Heavenly Father to deal with our self-righteousness. To deal with our pride. To deal with our sense of entitlement. When we have Jonah's mindset, we are minimizing our own need for God's grace and mercy. And we are inflating our righteousness and minimizing our sin. And when we have his mindset, we are lowering God's righteous standard for our lives to something that is more attainable. The antidote is to be humbled by God's holy law, to be humbled by the gospel of grace, which says that our salvation is not by works, it's not by anything that we do, but it is by the grace of God alone from beginning to end. The gospel of grace is meant to humble us before God. Saying that there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves. There's nothing that we can do to make ourselves right with a holy God. And that we need Jesus Christ to do it all for us. The gospel of grace leads us to bow before Jesus Christ in complete dependence upon Him for our salvation, for a right standing with God. Seeing that we deserved what Jesus suffered for us. We should have been on that cross. We should have been crucified. We should have borne the wrath of God. That's what Jesus did as our substitute. He bore our penalty in our place. The law of God humbles us. 
And the gospel of grace humbles us. And we need that, 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 that being humbled by both. We need to agree with God's word about our dire need for God's grace. We know in our profession of faith that salvation is not by a combination of faith and works, but it's by faith alone, in Christ alone. And that truth needs to saturate our hearts. Because so often we begin to think in a way as if somehow it's a combination of faith and our works. And we need to keep the truths before our mind of God's holy law, of the gospel of grace, of our dire need for God's grace. We need to keep these truths before our mind. Jesus taught in Luke 7, 47, that he who is forgiven much loves much, but he who is forgiven little loves little, loves God little, and consequently loves people little. They go together. When you know the great bitterness of your sin, then you can taste the great sweetness of God's grace. And when you taste the sweetness of divine grace, then you want others to taste it as well, for you know that you are just as undeserving as they all of us are the prodigal son in Christ's parable. All of us ran from God. All of us insulted God. All of us were utterly undeserving of God's favor. As sinners, that is who we are. If we have been saved, it is because God did for us what the prodigal son's father did for him. He took his robe, the righteousness of Christ, and clothed us with it. He put his ring on our finger. He put the, the sandals on our feet. He embraced us. He kissed us in his grace and mercy and his forgiveness. You know, in, in that parable, the prodigal son, if you know the culture of the, the day, it's shocking. The grace and the mercy that the father shows to the son. The father does for the son things that were unthinkable in that day. That's God's grace. That's his mercy. To us, it's unthinkable. It's amazing grace how sweet the sound. God has lavished his grace and mercy on us in salvation. God has done for us what the prodigal son's father did for him. Brothers and sisters, let me ask you, have you fully received and embraced the grace and mercy that God gave you when He saved you? Brothers and sisters, have you fully received and embraced the grace and mercy God gave you when He saved you? He gave it to you. But sometimes we don't receive it and embrace it fully. If you have not fully received and embraced the grace that God has given you in salvation, I urge you to do so now. Beloved brethren, Christ paid for all of your sins at the cross. And He was raised on the third day in order that you would be completely forgiven. There may be some sins that you have committed that you've never told anyone else about. You're too ashamed to tell someone about. Even that sin, Christ died for upon the cross. He died for all of our sin. No matter how grievous our sins have been, Christ paid the full penalty for all of our sin at the cross. Past, present, and future. His love for you is not based on your obedience. He loved you before the foundation of the world. His grace is not based on your obedience, then it would not be grace. When you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, you were clothed with the perfect righteousness of Christ. His perfect obedience, of which the, 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 the Father referred to at Jesus' baptism and at the transfiguration of Christ when He said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. That righteousness has been imputed to you. When you stand before God, the judge, you are clothed in that righteousness of Christ. 
Christ took all of your sins, not the majority of it. He took all of your sins upon himself at the cross. And he didn't give you just the majority of his righteousness. But when God justified you, he gave you all the righteousness of Christ. Let the grace of God, brothers and sisters, wash away all your self-righteousness. Brothers and sisters, let the grace of God wash away all your pride, your sense of entitlement. And rejoice in the God of all grace, the God of all mercy, who has lavished His grace and His mercy upon us. Rejoice that God is giving the same grace and mercy to others. Jonah acknowledged to the Lord, You are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. And the book of Jonah makes crystal clear that Israel did not have a monopoly on this grace and mercy. That's what Jonah wanted. He wanted Israel to have a monopoly on God's grace and mercy. And the book makes it crystal clear that Israel did not have such a monopoly. And teaches that it is good, that this is God's nature, to be gracious and merciful, to be forgiving, to be relenting from disaster, to be slow to anger. This is good, that this is God's nature. May we not try to limit God's grace and mercy, as if it was for us, but not for others. But may we freely rejoice that this is God's unchanging nature. If He was not gracious and merciful, He would not be worthy of worship, and we would have no reason to be here this morning. It's one of His perfections. It's part of His nature part of His perfect nature that makes Him worthy of the highest praise and worship. If the Lord has not saved you, I urge you this morning to turn from your sin to the crucified and risen Christ in order to be saved. Jesus said in John 6 verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your grace and Your mercy that You have lavished upon us in Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. A grace and a, and a mercy that began before the foundation of the world a grace and a mercy, a mercy that will see us all the way to glory. Oh Lord, we thank You that our st right standing with You is not based in any way on our works. We thank You that Your favor is unmerited, undeserved, and freely given by You to us who deserve just the opposite of Your favor. We thank You that Jesus died for all of our sins upon the cross. We thank You that You raised Your Son for our justification. We thank You that when we believed in Your Son, You declared us righteous once and for all, a standing that will not be jeopardized by anything, a sure, eternal, everlasting standing with You. Oh Lord, forgive us for our self-righteousness. Forgive us for our pride. Forgive us for thinking that we are entitled to be treated better than others. Oh Lord, forgive us for being like Jonah. Oh Lord, teach us to do as Christ taught us in those parables. Teach us to rejoice with you, O oh Heavenly Father, every time a sinner repents. Help us, O oh Father, to rejoice with You every time that You save the lost. This is right. This is fitting. 
and enable us to hold out this gospel of grace to our co-workers, our neighbors, our friends, and to those in our community and beyond all the way to the ends of the earth. For your eternal glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.